under the authority this evening. In Jesus' name. An amazing thing to be here with you tonight, back in church. And it, it is really such a blessing to be here. Tim, Tim said he felt like I was coming home. And it is like that. You know, this is, this is where two of my sons have come. I feel like I know lots of you. And uh, Tim and Joe and Trevor and I have prayed together for years and years and years. And we've prayed for this church. And it's just a, it's just a real joy seeing it grow, seeing what God's doing. And I feel so excited about what is ahead for you. So thank you for the welcome. It is a joy to be here. And thank you, Tim, for giving me James chapter 4, which we're going to read together. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have, because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us, but he gives us more grace? That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now there's a passage and a half. Is it, have, have we got an earring problem? Yeah, there we go. There we go. James has a bit to say about vanity as well. Um, so, quite a challenging passage, but in it we have the most wonderful summary of the good news of Jesus. Verse 6. But God gives us more grace. So if you forget absolutely everything else I say tonight, I really want you to take this away. But God gives us more grace. And whatever you are facing in your life, whatever battles, whatever's been going on for you, whatever messes you have made, whatever ways you feel that you are stuck in patterns of sin, whatever is going on in your life, God gives more grace. James was writing to a group of people who really badly needed more grace. They were the very earliest Christian believers, and honestly, they hadn't really learned how to behave and they were behaving really badly. They were betraying their relationship with God as if they were enemies of God and not friends of God. And James says they were like wives who cheat on their husbands. So this is really serious stuff. But 
God gives more grace. Why do we need this grace? Well, James speaks of a fierce internal battle of conflicting desires. It's those times when the desire for God's way hits up against my desire, my selfish desire for my way and my pleasure. Now, I want to be really clear. Pleasure in itself is not wrong. God created pleasure. God created wine, chocolate, sex, so many of the good things in life. But when James talks about the desires that battle within you, the Greek word there is the word from which we get our word hedonism. And it might be a, a, a Greek word, but it's still a really modern problem because we live in a truly hedonistic culture, don't we? In fact, I discovered this week that you, there's even a Spotify playlist, quite a few hedonism Spotify playlists that you can look up because our culture is so much about living life for me and for my satisfaction. And for all of us, there's this internal battle. I don't know if that resonates for you. It, it definitely resonates for me. But God gives us more grace. Let's just say that together. God gives us more grace. James is really clear that when we are ruled by selfish desire, the ultimate end of that is we end up at war he uses this language of war with God and with one another. And that's what was happening in the early church. I don't know, have any of you seen, just wave a hand if you've seen the, um, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. There's a few of you who have spotted that particular moment in a little argument in a parish council. Well, James was addressing quarrels of similar magnitude and actually worse because he talks about fighting and even killing and he might just have been exaggerating but it's quite possible that that happens. Now here at St. Dionys you have the most amazing heritage of loving one another and honoring one another and you may not realize how precious that is. So there isn't that kind of quarreling going on. I don't think there have been any murders. But we all know, don't we, that the battle of desires in us can impact our relationship with God and each other and I expect we've all seen quarrels spill over to devastate families, workplaces, and churches. And James goes right to the heart of the problem. And it is the problem of the human heart. And it comes down to this. Are you first a friend of the world or a friend of God? I wonder how you'd answer that if you really think about it. Well, you might say, well, why shouldn't we be friends of this world? I mean, it says in the Bible, God loved this world so much that he gave his only son to die for it. Well, James is using the term loving the world here as shorthand for living for the short-term goals of those around us rather than living for God. 
of course we're supposed to love those around us. It's not that we're supposed to disconnect from this world. This is about choosing whether we choose to run with the values of the world system that prevails around us rather than following Christ. Now, why ever would you choose friendship with the world over friendship with Jesus? Why ever would we do that? And I just want you to really listen for a moment. God wants to be your friend. Just take that in for a moment. God standing before you saying, I want to be your friend. That's the wonder of the gospel. And I found myself, just as we were praying beforehand, really feeling that there's this personal invitation tonight to be a friend of God and to be those who can sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And as I look back over the last year since I lost Trevor, I'm so grateful that I've had this friend in Jesus. I wonder if you have a clue of how much God wants to be your friend, how much he loves you. God loves us more passionately, treasures us more than you treasure your dearest friend, even more than Connor loves his fiance Freya even more than I did warn Freya that I was going to embarrass her, I didn't quite tell her how, even more than Tim loves Joe. And I don't know if you've ever seen the impact of an affair on a marriage. I have. And it is very heartbreaking. I've watched marriages hit by the impact of somebody betraying it. Well, in this passage in James... James tells us that that kind of heartbreak is a glimpse of how God feels when we choose the world over him. God describes it like the experience of a heartbroken, betrayed husband. That's why James turns around and says, you adulterous people, you cheating wives. And I remember discussing at one point with my husband, Trevor, what we'd feel like if one of us had an affair and how utterly devastated we would be and rightly jealous, really jealous. And actually the best translation of verse 5 of our reading is that God is jealously longing for us. And it matters when we choose the world over him. So what is to be done in this battle of desires. It is a fierce battle, but God gives us, God gives us, imagine for a moment that you are fighting a battle and you are in real trouble and the enemy is just winning and you, you, you just know that you are, you're, you're, troops are dwindling, you don't know what you're going to do, you're completely outnumbered, and then suddenly reinforcements appear, the air force appears with your colours, you know, your flag on it over the mountain, the tanks start to roll in, and the tables turn. 
God's grace does that for us. In the midst of the battle, he turns the tables because there's so much grace. I loved it years ago hearing John Wimber speak. And he described having a vision. He was driving along and he saw this cloud overhead and it just began dripping with honey. And it was this huge cloud and it was like a vision for him of the wonder of the grace of God, which is so great. It is enough for us. Whatever you have done, wherever you are at, there is more grace to forgive, to be forgiven, to forgive grace enough to change. We are not doomed to stay the same. I had a lovely phone call this week from a friend of mine, Paula, who um, first came to our church over, it was, it was nearly 20, about 20 years, over 20 years ago now. Um, I know that because she said to me, Kate, I've been clean now of hard drugs for 21 years. And she talked about how God had just lifted her out of the gutter and what God had done in her family. It's the most amazing story. I tell a bit about it in one of the books. I can't remember which one. We have a God who comes with reinforcements to empower us to change. So what part do we have to play? We do have a part to play. Andrew Murray, who I love as a devotional writer, if you haven't read anything he's written, look him up. He says this, water flows to the lowest places. So does God's grace. And our part is that we are called to humble ourselves. We need to recognize that we are in need of grace in order to receive it. We're called to humility, and that is really challenging. And I, I was reading a bit of, uh, about this this week, and um, William Law, who again, another amazing devotional writer, just says, we mustn't think of humility as a nice virtue and pride as a slightly sort of upsetting vice. It's the difference between life and death. Humility is our core virtue when it comes to receiving and walking the Christian life. But I don't know about you, I can get myself in a right tangle on this one because you end up doing something like this, you know, Lord, please will you humble me? Lord, please, please make me humble. I, 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 you know, I see I need to be humble. Oh, thank you, you've answered that prayer. I'm humble now. Oh, no, no, that means I'm not humble. And you can get yourself in a right old pickle over it. And I really like what Bishop Handley Mool says. And he gives us the most brilliant prescription for humility. He says, for every thought I think about myself, I need to think nine about my loving savior. Isn't that great? I wonder if you could try that this week to spend every other thought even on your loving savior who died to rescue you and who's here to love you and help you and befriend you. And after all the isolation of lockdown, how amazing that we have this friend who is here. Because I want to be really clear, humility isn't about doing ourselves down. James, ever practical, gives us the first step 
in this journey of humility. And he says we start by submitting ourselves to God. We're saying, God, you are higher than me. It's not saying I'm useless. It is anything but that. It's the word used of a soldier coming to his or her commanding officer ready for a mission, saying, I'm available. And that's why we have bang in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. So that every day we're saying, this isn't about me. And and. That's really quite the heart of humility, isn't it? To actually turn around and go, it's not all about me. When we submit, that's when God sends in the reinforcements. Can you see them coming over the hill? And we discover that we can resist the devil and he flees from us. And I don't know if you've realized this, but you are in a vicious spiritual battle. Just raise a hand if you recognize that you are in a vicious spiritual battle. Yeah, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the only way we win is by running to God and submitting our lives to him. And then we have great authority to resist the evil one and to see patterns of sin and shame and lies break in our lives. We start with admitting our need of more grace because the truth is you cannot do this Christian life on your own. And that's one of the reasons why this lockdown lark has been so hard because we're actually supposed to have each other and to be together. Try the proud independent way and you will lose the battle. Always we're being called to come back to God. And so that's this great promise in this passage. Come close to God and he will come close to you. And I just felt tonight the Lord really loves it that you've come tonight, whether it's online or here tonight. He knows this is the desire of your hearts to draw close to him. And his promise is that he will come close to you. The promise is that when we turn to God, reinforcements come and it's not some stranger. God himself comes to fight for us. God himself comes to give us more grace. And James is clear that this practice of coming close to God isn't just a kind of mouth service, lip service, repentance. It's, it's us coming from the, with our hearts. God's looking for us to turn to him with our hearts tonight. And I I don't know if anybody else did this when they were younger, but as a child, I can really remember using I'm sorry as a get out of jail card. And maybe just not always quite meaning it, but I did know it worked. But true repentance is from God. And it's a godly sorrow because we have grieved God And so James says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. But when we see how we have grieved God, we will grieve We're in quite a mocking culture, aren't we? 
but, you know, it's not okay to laugh off sin. Our culture tends to think that happiness is the ultimate end goal in life. And that's actually quite a, a confused and distorted lie. I don't know if any of you have seen that footage of the Nazi officers who'd been in the um, concentration camps on their holidays, really happy, because happiness isn't necessarily godliness. And James is looking at the church and he's seeing favoritism, arguments, gossips, quarrels, judging one another, and he's saying, don't be happy about that. Grieve over it, knowing that when you do, God will give more grace. And I absolutely know that some listening here will be those who have a tendency to beat yourself up. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. But just about everywhere I've spoken, people who've been in church a while, there will be some of you here who will hear a talk like this about repentance and immediately want to start beating yourself up. And I want you to listen really carefully because actually godly sorrow isn't supposed to be a permanent state of grief. Paul says godly sorrow leaves no regrets. And as I was sort of researching it and looking at this passage, I, I really found it was so helpful to see our reading through the lens of the story of the prodigal son who ran away to fulfill his selfish desires and had to humble himself to come back home. And he experienced a genuine sorrow that he had grieved his dad. And so it's so many of the pictures of what's happening in our passage. But that painful journey back had an end to it. It brought him home into his father's arms, into his father's embrace. And he discovered the father who gives us more grace. And I guess all of us have seen examples of graceless, joyless religion. You know, kind of think of Javert in Les Mis, or um, just raise a hand if you've seen the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Society film. A few of you, it's a bit more of a girly film, I know, although I did make Johnny watch it. Um, but it, it has in it this really dour landlady. She's dreadful, and she's wandering around clutching her massive black Bible, pursing her lips and disapproving of joy. That is not the plan. And there have been those who've read this passage in James and really got the wrong idea. Repentance is the journey to joy. The heart humility that God calls us to is always so that he can give us more grace. Yes. And if we look at all the great revivals, the great moves of God in history, there's this marker of repentance leading into joys. You look at the East African revival, which my parents were part of, the Wesleyan revival, the Hebridean revival. There's this great mourning over sin. Listen to this account from the Hebridean revival which I read this week. Apparently, this, there was this extraordinary move of God on the Isle of Lewis, and a young man stood up and he read Psalm 24, 
which says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Only the ones with a clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. That's who receives blessing from the Lord. And then he closed his Bible and he said, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we're praying, to be waiting as we're waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And there was a deep repentance, a deep turning, heartfelt turning to God in this barn in Scotland. And immediately around three o'clock in the morning, they'd been praying a long time, the presence of God gripped every person present. It wasn't only them that sensed this, it spread to the entire village and surrounding area. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want the presence of God spilling out of the building? The group of intercessors left the barn at that early hour and they found men and women kneeling along the roads, crying out to God for mercy. Every home had lights on it. No one could sleep with the awareness and the presence of God being so overwhelming. Hundreds came to the church. God gave more grace. And as God's people humbled themselves and repented, the water of God's spirit poured down to the low ground and softened it. And there was a great harvest there was an extraordinary outpouring of love and joy. And one of the people of the time said, we loved everybody. They were all enveloped in the wonderful love of God. We just loved them all. So what does God want to say to us today as I come into land? God is jealous for our friendship. God is jealous for our love and he is calling us to grieve over when we have chosen the world's agenda over him he's calling us to humbly admit our need of him so that he can give us more grace i i find i am so so in need of the grace of god but we can come together via the cross where every sin was taken and know every sin forgiven. The God who gave his beloved son to die for you and for me will not withhold more grace. And I, I just knew tonight that there are a few here who really have felt they are in the battle and God is just saying, ask me, for reinforcements and I will come because every time we turn from pride and humbly make that journey back home to God he comes running to meet you he's running to meet you as you come to church tonight he says to you today come close to me I will come close to you. We are invited to come back tonight to his fatherly embrace and to receive more grace. Let's pray together.
I just want to give a moment for you to do business with God. He knows your hearts. He knows where you're at. This isn't about paying lip service. This is about our hearts before the living God. So I'm just going to leave a moment of just silence. Come, Holy Spirit.